This episode is brought to you by Evermill. Evermill makes the world's most elegant spice rack that features text-to-refill organic spices in compostable packets, as well as a suite of kitchen products that help you cook so you can focus on sharing meals with the ones you love. This episode is brought to you by Equipped. Equipped is a modern luxury fitness brand that creates stylish, compact, portable, and versatile fitness equipment that will inspire you to move anytime, anywhere, whether you have half a minute or half an hour. Stay tuned for some special offers from our amazing sponsors exclusively for Stairway to CEO listeners later in the show. Hello, everyone. It's Lee Green, and welcome back to the Stairway to CEO podcast. It's my mission to bring you real, honest, and unfiltered interviews with some of the most innovative founders and CEOs from all walks of life. We'll talk about their climb to the top, their stumbles along the way, and the steps they took to get them to where they are. So tune in to get inspired, listen to some real talk, and enjoy the show. Hello, everyone. I'm your host, Lee Green, and welcome back to the show. This is episode 154, and I sat down today with Paul Schiraldi, the CEO of Murad. Founded in 1989 in Los Angeles by Dr. Howard Murad when he was 50 years old, Murad is the first brand of clinical skincare products and was acquired by Unilever in 2015. In this episode, Paul shares his story from growing up in Staten Island to attending NYU and getting an internship at HBO, to working in sales at USA Today and pivoting his career path to the beauty industry, where he worked at Revlon and then rised up the ranks over 17 years at L'Oreal. We talk about the lessons he learned while working as vice president and general manager of Dermalogica, how he got the opportunity to become CEO of Murad, and what qualities he thinks makes a great leader. If you like what you're hearing on the Stairway to CEO podcast, don't forget to click subscribe, leave us an awesome review, and check us out on stairwaytoceo.com. Thanks for listening, and I hope you enjoy this episode. Hi, Paul. Thanks so much for joining me on the show today. I'm excited to share your story and becoming the CEO of Murad. Thanks so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. I'm excited to be here. Awesome. And we're both in LA. It's finally sunny out. It's been raining nonstop for many, many <laughs> weeks. I was like, why am I living here on the West Coast? There's way too much rain. It's the same. I moved from New York. I moved back a couple of years ago and I was like, wow, we finally got a winter and finally got rain. So it's hard to complain though, considering it's been so dry. I know it's true. I think all the lakes and rivers, they're all filled up right about now. So we're good to stop on the <laughs> rainfall <laughs> weatherman. If you hear me up there, it's been a lot, but I'm glad. Yeah, no more drought. I think it's official. We're hopefully not in a drought anymore. It's official, which is kind of amazing. But I yes. guess after what feels like three months of rain, I guess it's deserved. It's only been 10 years, right, of a drought. I <laughs> know. <laughs> hey, that's not bad. You know, three months of rain to return 10 years of a drought. I mean, all right, fine. We did it. 10 years of sun. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> So where are you from originally? Let's talk about your childhood. Looking back, what were the dynamics? Like, did you have siblings? What was it like with your parents growing up? Kind of paint the picture for us. Sure. Yeah. I grew up in New York City. 
I was raised in Staten Island mostly. I had one set of grandparents in Manhattan and one set of grandparents in Brooklyn. My parents moved to Staten Island when my sister and I were small. I think they felt like they'd give us a suburban life with a house and a pool, but they didn't yeah. want to stray too far from Brooklyn and Manhattan. So they netted out on Staten Island. <laughs> so there that's where I grew up. And what was it like? Did you say you have siblings? Yeah, I have an older sister. She's five years older than I was. And I always laugh because I have a really great memory. For when I was a kid, I remember like tons of funny things from being really small, but I have not much of a recollection of my sister, which is really funny. But I think it's because there was a five-year gap and we were always kind of just doing different things. Makes sense. I want to hear some of those stories. Are any of those stories relating to like how you became kind of a CEO and, and naturally being interested in leadership? No, it's interesting. Not really. I mean, I just have funny memories from like being really small. Like I remember my grandmother walking to the, we had a bay window in our house. And I remember walking to the bay window and not being able to like see out the window and my grandmother wanting to pick me up so I could look out and being like, I'm going to be taller than you one day. And I, I went back when I was in a, like when I was in college and I went, I went back home and I was so struck by the, the height of that windowsill because it was, I had to have been like just barely able to walk because it was really rather low. So I just have these really funny memories from being really, really small and quite young. And experiencing things that were very large or what seemed large at the time when you're so small. <laughs> yeah, it's exactly. So true. Yeah. It's so true. I swear <laughs> I was looking at, I had this experience going back to my elementary school. I went through the hallways and I always thought as a little kid that those hallways were huge. And going back as an adult, I was like, oh my God, these are the smallest hallways I've ever seen. <laughs> and then I was looking at an old house, you know, in Redfin where I used to live. And I was looking at some of the pictures and that house specifically was like one of the biggest houses we had. And I was looking at it. And I was like, that is a small house. Like, what am I thinking? I have, it's so funny that you say that because I did that recently on Zillow with the house that I grew up in. And I was like, God, it was so small. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we had the same situation where it's like, wow, that, yeah. that just cut a knife through my uh, childhood dream house where I thought it was a huge bedroom that I had and all these things. And you look and you're like, actually, that was like really small. Yeah, it's it's interesting. But, you know, it's funny. Staten Island sort of a funny place. It's like, probably best known for like working girl, but it was actually a really normal upbringing. I always say that. I don't know you realize a lot of that stuff until you get older, but it was just really normal. Everyone, it was just like a really safe environment and it was just like a very quiet, safe upbringing. What did you want to be when you grew up? Like looking back, what were your hopes and dreams as a kid? <clears throat> So I was always like very creative and very analytical. So I always, as I grew up and tried to figure things out, I kind of always oscillated between the two to try to figure out what I wanted to do. But I, the two things that I did most as a kid was I was obsessed with like houses and floor plans. Like I used to like have notebooks of like houses that I would draw and like, and I wanted to be an architect. Wow. How did you even know what an architect was? Like, how did you even know? Because Staten Island wasn't that developed when I was a kid. And so when they started developing it, they, my mom sometimes would, we would stop off at like some of the new developments and they'd give you a little floor plan of the house, of the different models of houses. And I was very small, but I remember I like yeah. loved getting the little packet with like the different houses and the different floor plans. And so I would then create my own. <laughs> that is so hilarious. I have never had someone on the show say that before. And that's awesome. Yeah. Isn't it amazing what we're exposed to as a kid and how that like creates and sparks ideas? 
yeah, and, and like what you become interested in. And the other really funny thing is, I remember reading in TV Guide. I was a, I really watched a lot of TV as a kid. My parents were very like lenient, so they never like as long as I did my homework, I could watch as much TV as I wanted. And I was really into like certain programs, and it was like seventies TV shows at their like height. And the TV Guide had a little like article one time about how you could actually write to the Nielsen company at the time, which used to measure all the TV shows. And you could get a ranking of the TV shows, like popularity and their ratings. And so if you sent a letter every week, they would send you back the list of the shows and like how they were, how they ranked for the week. And so I was like fascinated by TV programming. And so it's just really funny. I was really, so I thought like for a period of time, I wanted to work for like a TV network and go into programming. And maybe even rank the shows yourself. No. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. So it was like, those are the two things that I was like really into as a kid when I think about like what I wanted to do. It's sort of funny, but it actually really does tie into what I do now because, you know, so much of what you do in this role and I came up through marketing is really about the architecture of a brand, looking at a, where it's going, trying to build a strategy for something going forward. And a lot of it is sort of like looking at the structure, how things fit together, why things are popular or not, like how can you move a show to a different point in time and see if the ratings change, like all that weird stuff. It's all kind of related to the same kind of set of tools. <laughs> Very interesting. I love, that's why I like asking about our childhoods, right? Because there's little nuggets in there that are the reason why we're the way we are. <laughs> it is very true. Yeah. Mine are pretty funny, I think. But yeah. And so, yeah. So I went, when I went to college, I couldn't decide what I wanted to do. So I went to NYU undergrad and I started off in the business school and I ended up with a film degree. So I ended up graduating from NYU film because I couldn't, I, I always sort of struggled with like, I was good in math, but I wasn't really a finance dork. And I was mm -hmm. really creative, but I wasn't as creative as the guys, most of the people in the film school. Right. So You're like right in the like middle. Somewhere in between. <laughs> That's funny. So what, what were some of the first jobs that you had, whether it was before that college experience or during? What were your first jobs? Yes. In college, I worked for HBO for a while, which I oh, loved. There you so go. My programming you got thing. your TV yeah. role. <laughs> I got my like TV thing. I, at the time, I thought it was like super political and I was a little overwhelmed by the culture of it. I think I was just really young. I don't think there was anything strange about the culture. And then weirdly, HBO didn't really pay. It was sort of like a nominally paid kind of internship. But I was there for, for a bit, like a year. And then I got a job that actually paid at USA Today in their like advertising and sales department. And I really, I wasn't a salesperson. I never really had much interest in that, but I was very interested in why companies chose to market in USA Today. And so that kind of led me to go into like advertising when I graduated. So it's actually another kind of funny story. Like USA Today, they were very fortunate. They hired me when I graduated. And so I worked in the ad sales department, but one of the accounts that I worked on was Microsoft at Ogilvy and Mather. And I was trying to get a job there. And I had interviewed and they took like a really long time. It was like like six weeks or so to like tell me if I was getting the job or not. And I interviewed with this woman. Her name was Noni West and she was the media director at the time. And she had on a bowling shirt that had the big name Floyd on it when I interviewed her. I remember this so clearly. She had stuff all over her office. I literally had to jump from the hall to like 
a desk chair to avoid stepping on the stuff that was on the floor in her office. Oh my gosh, she was, was like really, a borderline hoarder. It's like it was really funny. There was a lot going on at the time in Ogilvy and Mather. And I, after like six weeks or so, I went to a used clothing store and I bought this really funny pair of old golf shoes that were white. And I sent her one of the shoes in a FedEx package. And I said, I'm still trying to get my foot in the door. And she said that she said that she got this FedEx package while she was in a conference room. And she was like, opened up this like package in a conference room. And like, there was a shoe in it. And the guy who was the head at the time said, you need to hire that kid. <laughs> so that's I mean, I obviously, that is hilarious. <laughs> so you literally shipped her a shoe, not both of them, just one, because you were trying to get just a foot one. in the door. That yep. is hilarious. It was an old white golf shoe. <laughs> was it your size? Are you just sent? You just sent any size? I don't remember. Actually, it was a guy's shoe though, and it was a big one. And I remember she called me up after she got it, and she told me the story. And then she said, "But you know the thing that's really scary." And she and I remember this so much. She goes, "There are people still wearing shoes like this." <laughs> <laughs> that's funny. Oh my gosh, that's so creative. How did you even think to do that? What made you think that you would get a job or that could help you in any way by shipping a shoe to someone? I was just young. And so I was just, I couldn't understand why I was taking them so so long to get back to me. And so I just thought, now I know, because sometimes I do the same thing now. I'm just like, sorry, we have so many things going on. I can't tell you if we're moving forward or not. But at the time, it seemed so strange to me that it was taking that long. And I don't know. After like brainstorming with one of my friends, I came up with this idea that like, I really have no idea what inspired me to do it. It's just funny. I mean, getting the idea for it and actually doing it are two totally different <laughs> things. And the fact that you <laughs> did it is hilarious. <laughs> like, I love that. I mean, if anyone sent an issue <laughs> like that and said that, I'd be like hired immediately. Like you have to. That's yeah, so it was pretty funny, actually. So it makes me it makes me chuckle when I think back at that. Yeah. So then I went into advertising after that. And so I realized. So wait, I think thing, I, though, I, I feel like we of, have to tell the audience if anyone wants to get a job at Murad just to send you a shoe. <laughs> send me a shoe. There you go. I have a soft spot <laughs> for a single shoe. <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. OK, so you got in. Obviously, you got this job in advertising. I think you said it was. How yep. did it go? How long were you there? Like, what were some of the things you learned? And what was next? Uh, it was interesting. And I'm going to date myself, which is really funny. So I worked the first one of the first campaigns I worked on was Microsoft because it was a Microsoft account. And it was their first advertising campaign to try and explain to people why they needed to buy this thing called software. Wow. And yeah. so it was a direct response TV commercial where you called this 800 number, you got a video cassette, and the video cassette explained to you why not only did you need to buy a computer, but you had to buy this thing called software that went with the computer. And wow. the, the software That's was a Microsoft. really tough sales process right there. That is a lot of friction. <laughs> that was my first big campaign. Yeah. How did it do? Really it did quite well from what I recall, but I decided, you know, this like technology thing and software just really, I just know it just really wasn't for me. Not going to go <laughs> anywhere. Microsoft. <laughs> meh. That's funny. Yeah, I was like, eh. <laughs> yeah. So I went to work for another ad agency after that to kind of see if it was Ogilvy that I wasn't happy with or the account or it was advertising. And in the end, I worked on a bunch of like less interesting accounts and although a variety of funny different things. And I loved learning about all the different industries, but I always wanted to know why, like why were, why were these the marketing strategies? 
strategies that these companies had. And so, and I realized I started looking at like jobs on the brand side and I realized many of them like wanted people with an MBA and things like that. So I decided to go back to grad school. And then I went back after that stint at McCann Erickson in San Francisco. I went back to grad school in LA. Interesting. All right. And then what? What happened from there? And then I was still sort of debating if I should work in film or not. So I trying very hard to get into the film industry and I got a I couldn't really land the right, like a permanent job. I could land these like sort of freelance type of roles. And so upon graduation, I had like an opportunity to work like in this freelance role for 20th Century Fox, or I got a job, which is really equally as funny as the brand manager of Manwich at Out Wesson. Do you remember Manwich? No. What is Manwich? <laughs> it's like a slot. It was really big in the 70s. And it's like a sloppy Joe sauce which is like it was out of texas and it's like ground beef and this tomato oh i know what sloppy joes like, are oh yeah, yeah. okay and so it was like a sauce that you created sloppy joes with and so i remember telling the folks at 20th century fox that i decided not to take their role and they were like where are you going and i was like i'm gonna go work at manwich and they were like what <laughs> that's hilarious why yeah, did you choose that fun. over 20th century fox because i realized that when i interviewed at Fox and I met all the folks that marketing was really secondary. It was really the creative that was the primary driver of the business. And I really wanted to be in the middle of it all. Because the reason why I got back to grad school was like that constant question, like the constant why of why are these businesses, why are these the marketing strategies? And I realized that the strategy is really the same, similar with, with movie after movie. It was really the, the brand side that was more interesting to me. So I thought I would take a role in at Hunt Wesson working on food and man, man witch instead. So how did it go? So you take on this sloppy Dude. Joe type of job. What was it like yeah. over there? And how long were you there? I was there for not that long, probably like two years. And then I went to another company on the West Coast and then eventually went back to New York. It was good. I really liked it, actually. I mean, it was, I liked the mix of the creative and the analytical skills. I thought food was too slow moving for me. Mm. I purposely, like, after looking at, I weirdly, like, when I went back to grad school, I was very clear that I wanted to work in brand marketing. And then I sort of, even though I kind of went after film at the same time, my my second sort of really strong desire was to do the brand side of things. And I, I think I finally just realized that working in brand was the right mix of creative and analytical skills, which I was always kind of like somewhere in between the two for such a large part of my life. And I felt like I kind of clicked for me that that was the right sort of career path. And I've been in packaged goods and consumer products ever since. And so I really liked it. I liked, you know, the, the mix of the two and I liked running the business and I liked finally understanding the why behind the marketing strategy and the insights and the research and the product development and and all of that. But it wasn't food wasn't fast enough for me. So I wanted more TV commercials and more product innovation and more trends. <laughs> yeah. And so that's kind of what led me to look at beauty. And so at the time, the real big company on the West Coast was Neutrogena. And for whatever reason, I had trouble breaking into Neutrogena. So I was going back to New York on a trip, a work trip, and I happened to get a call from a recruiter for a job at Revlon. And so I thought, well, I'm going to be in New York anyway. Why don't I just go? And when I went and interviewed there, I thought like, oh, this makes sense to me. Like it's the fun, creative people that I enjoyed working with at the agency side and that I appreciated when I went to film school. 
but it also has the rigor and the structure of a more consumer products business like I was in in food. So I felt like, oh, I've got the right mix of the two. And so I moved back to New York and I was there. I went to Revlon and then I went to L'Oreal and I was at L'Oreal for 17 years before jumping over to Unilever. Wow. And so 17 years at L'Oreal, obviously holding several different titles. Kind of if you could talk to us a little bit about your experience there and kind of maybe what some of those experiences, how they help prepare you for a CEO role. Yeah, it was a lot. I had a really good experience at L'Oreal. So it's a tough place to work. There's a lot of smart people. It's a very driven organization. And I I give them credit because whenever I kind of felt like I was getting a little itchy and like antsy and ready to move, even without saying anything, they very oftentimes like were very good at presenting me with another opportunity. So I think that was one of the benefits of being in a big company like that. And and it's also grew tremendously while I was there. So I think when I got there, they had like 13 brands. And by the time I left, they had like 35 brands or 36 brands or something. So they grew tremendously both, you know, in terms of acquisition and launching, you know, international brands into the States and stuff. And so it's interesting, you don't realize how well prepared you are necessarily until you sort of get the role. So I knew necessarily at the time, it was such good experience. But I realized after leaving, and even in some of the roles that I was sort of thrown into while I was there that, and I think that was one of the big learnings for me is that like, you do know, like you pick up a lot working in an organization like that. There's a lot of people to model behavior after in terms of leadership and management style. But you're also given a lot of different types of businesses to work on. So whether they're smaller businesses that are more established in Europe, trying to establish themselves in the U.S., or big businesses in the U.S. that have big budgets. I was in global roles where you know I launched brands internationally that were American brands that were going global. I had the opportunity to work overseas for a couple of years. So that was a great experience. I was in Australia for three years. So I think... They offered me a lot. And I think I, I took I took pretty much every opportunity they gave me. Awesome. I mean, it's amazing that without having to say anything, they kept you going. Because I find sometimes yeah. it's the opposite, <laughs> especially in startup world. You're kind of always like begging for the next situation. You always have to advocate for yourself so much, I feel like, you know, because they're just trying to be so scrappy, maybe. I don't know. It's, a, it's an interesting to hear that. And that must be a nice position to be in when you don't have to be raising your voice all the time, every time. And you kind of, they, they are proactively keeping you engaged. Yeah, for sure. I was very fortunate. I think I was very lucky that I had the person who hired me, who was in HR. I think I fortunately kind of always had an eye on my career development, you know, just kind of coincidentally, we ended up oftentimes in in similar areas. So we, we continue to work with each other. So I think that helps, you know, having somebody who's looking out for you. And ultimately, the reason why I left was because for the first time, I felt like after 17 years, there wasn't really the right next step for me. And so and that was kind of what really prompted me to look and but yeah, I, they were great about moving me and developing me. And I I feel very fortunate that I had that experience because a lot of people do get frustrated. I think though that's one of the lessons that I got from it was that, because obviously after over 17 years, you do think from time to time, like, should I go somewhere else? Or you get a call from a recruiter and you're like, that's interesting. You know, should I consider that? And I think I always felt it's going to be weird to, you're probably not going to even come back, although some people do, but it's rare. And so I sort of thought, well, let me make sure I, take advantage of everything that's available here before I leave. And so I kind of stuck with that mentality and um, it paid off. Yeah, no, that's a great way to think about it. Just make sure you really kind of 
juiced it before you're ready to take off. If there's still more to learn, if there's still places to go or, or experiences to be had, then why run? Why leave? Right? Yeah, yeah. and that's the way I, fe- I felt. You know, there were mm-hmm. so many businesses there. It's not. It wasn't always an easy place to work, but but right. they have so many brands, and um, honestly, it's a really a a well run organization. Yeah. And so, but after 17 years, you've spent so much of your life and career at this job, at this one company. What made you want to leave? Obviously, you explained that a little bit, but how did the opportunity to work at Dermalogica come about? Yeah, sometimes I do feel like life unfolds and you sort of just have to, when it does unfold in front of you, you sort of have to just take it, right? So I had an opportunity. I had been on Matrix and Biolage for seven years, which is a long time. That was the longest stint I had at L'Oreal. And I was a general manager by that point for the U.S. And so there, you expect that you'll be in the roles a little bit longer because there aren't as many brands to move. But I think I had gotten a little pigeonholed into hair care and the professional hair care division. And so while they had another opportunity for me in the division, which I think they felt was a good opportunity because it was a bigger brand, it was very similar to what I had been doing already. So that wasn't so interesting to me. And then they offered me the opportunity or to go overseas, but I had already gone overseas to Australia for a couple of years. So I wasn't really keen to do that as much. And I kind of in the back of my head always thought, especially like when February and March would roll around, winter really sucks in New York. So in the back of my head, I was always like, should I go back to Because I lived in LA in my 20s and I, I thought, should I go back? And so at that point in time, you know, I just... I got a call from a recruiter. Dermalogica wasn't really directly competitive. It seemed to go well. I thought I really wanted to work in skincare. And I kind of just I kind of just threw it out there. They knew, and I think the good part, and, I, and where I give them credit, is they knew that I wasn't happy with the opportunity they had to offer me. I recognized it was a good opportunity. It's just not what I wanted. I was clear about communicating that. And so I think after 17 years, they were like, okay, if this is what you want to do, yeah, it just it just kind of worked out. So I, you know, in a way, I took a step back to go to Dermalogic because in a way it was a little bit of a smaller job, but I felt that it was a good opportunity for me to finally be able to leave L'Oreal and to get into a category that I thought would be more interesting. And now we're going to take a quick break to hear a word from our sponsors. When was the last time you looked in your spice drawer? If you're like me, you probably have to look at it every time you cook, which is a lot. And it looks like a complete disaster. Different size seasonings, different brands, it's a mess and totally uninspiring. That's until I discovered Evermill, the most beautiful and inspiring spice rack I've ever seen. And it looks gorgeous both on your countertop for everyone to see and compliment, or it looks great in your spice drawer too. Not to mention, they send you refills in compostable packets that you can get delivered straight to your door simply by sending a text message. So if you're looking for an amazing gift idea, you have to check it out. They also just released two new products, a white marble salt well and an aluminum pepper mill perfect for the person who you think has everything. You can get 15% off by using the promo code stairway15 on evermill.com. That's 15% off site-wide for the first time ever using the code stairway15 at evermill.com. Do you struggle to find time to go to the gym or even just work out at home somehow? What about the ugly weights you're probably hiding in your closet or under your bed? Out of sight, out of mind. Am I right? Meet Equipped, 
a female-founded luxury fitness brand with a no-pressure approach to movement that creates gorgeous weights that look so good, you can place their U-shaped weight called the U-bar on your coffee table and your friends will probably think it's a new art piece. Or if you're on the go, just throw on their U-wrap super stylish vegan leather ankle weights so that you can get a little workout in while running your errands in style. Featured in everything from Vogue to the Financial Times, Equipped makes it easier to move through life. And if you're looking for a great gift idea this holiday season, you can get 20% off on EquippedMovement.com using the promo code STAIRWAY20. That's 20% off luxury fitness equipment using the code STAIRWAY20 on EquippedMovement.com. Thank you so much to our amazing sponsors. I hope you're able to take advantage of these exclusive deals designed just for you. Now let's get back to the show. And get to LA. (laughs) Exactly. And back and back to the warm winters. (laughs) All right. So you move back to the West Coast. You put in some time at Dermalogica as vice president, general manager. How did that experience go? How did it turn out? And then how did the CEO role opportunity come up to be CEO of Murad? It was a little scary. I mean, like after 17 years, you sort of don't know, don't know if you're going to be able to function outside in another organization. You know, what is that like? And it was in the middle of COVID because I had accepted the role mid to end of March. And so I didn't move. I was supposed to move in May and basically everything had like closed down at that point in time. So it was a little strange. So I was like not only leaving a company after 17 years and starting something new, but it was like all virtual because no one was in the office at that point. I don't know. You're just rolling. In some ways it was easy because it was virtual. So I could kind of hide behind my screen a little bit, but it was good. You know, I I think I enjoyed the more entrepreneurial spirit of Dermalogic, obviously, because what appealed to me about the Unilever model was they keep all the brands independent. So the back ends of the brands aren't homogenized, you know, into one. They're still very much kept as independent small companies. And that to me was really interesting. So that was part of the reason why I thought in addition to Dermalogica, just being interesting, Unilever would be interesting. And I really enjoyed that aspect of it. I felt that I had a lot of really good experience that was relevant. So I felt like I could contribute a lot. Dermalogica is interesting because it has its pro and it's also consumer. So I understood the pro part quite well and the consumer part. So I felt like my experience was really relevant. And yeah, I just kind of went with it. I felt like I was ready to, to move on and the world seemed a little crazy. It was COVID and I uh, I started joining a lot of Teams meetings. <laughs> yeah, I may or may not have during your stint at Dermalogic. I was just looking at the dates. It looks like you you were there till October 2021. And in the last couple months of 2021 of your when you were working there, I was working for a software company called Phoenix Commerce. And I think I remember you were on one of our calls and we were selling you software. Oh, that's <laughs> that so VP funny. of sales over there. Yeah. <laughs> there it is. It's a small world. You guys that's signed really up, great. you know, it worked yeah. well. So <laughs> that's funny. <laughs> so then how did the CEO role that opportunity come up from Murad? And I would love to hear your thoughts in this being your first CEO title and just that whole that whole thing. How did it come up? So the CEO of Murad left during the pandemic, and they were interviewing for the position. And I was only at Dermalogica for a year and a half. So I really didn't expect to be considered for the role. But I figured I should throw my hat in the ring just so that people knew that I was interested. So I kind of reached out to kind of, you know, to say like, hey, 
this is something I'm interested in. This is partly why I came to Unilever and I'd be interested. I think they were really great in the sense that although they were quite honest that they were looking at external candidates and they prefer an external candidate at this point, that they were still willing to give me the opportunity to interview for it. And so I did. And I guess some of the external candidates didn't work out, quite honestly. And so then they decided to go with an internal candidate. And so I I sort of was in the right place at the right time a little bit. And I also wow. raised and my hand. Right. You did. You put your hat in the ring, like you said, which is <laughs> I amazing. Didn't, I, didn't need a, I didn't need a golf shoe this time. You didn't need a so. shoe in the ring. You put your hat in the ring this time. You sent a hat. No, <laughs> <laughs> and so with this opportunity and, and this interview process, was there any kind of self-doubt creeping in where you're like, what am I doing? Am I, could, do I, can I really be CEO of this brand? Did you ever doubt yourself? Yes and no. I mean, I sort of just thought the gentleman that I work for at Dermalogic is very bright, but I think we have very different strengths. And so I sort of thought like, well, I think I can bring something to that role, having seen him in the role. It would be different, but I think I could bring something to it. and. And I think I just always thought, I think I can do it. So why shouldn't I try to do it? What was it that you thought you could bring? I think I have a, I'm pragmatic and practical. And I think I'm good at formulating brand strategy and marketing strategies. And I think in my experience coming from L'Oreal is not necessarily on the entrepreneurial operational side of things, right? Because it's very structured for you. But it is really good at honing your marketing sales and strategy skills. And so I felt like there was an opportunity for that in, in whatever role I might take. And so I kind of just went for it. I don't know. I, I just kind of run into things. Like, I just kind of keep going. So I just thought like, hey, why not? <laughs> right. That's interesting. I mean, I think there's a lot of different types of CEOs, different types of COOs. It really kind of varies. And so I'm, that's why I'm curious what you felt your strengths were and how they're different maybe from other CEOs. Like I said, I think it's more the creative and the analytical side and how yeah. it translates into marketing. I think all. So I've done a lot of different things. So I worked internationally. I worked in product development. I worked in global development. I worked running a business operationally. I worked in sales roles. I worked in marketing roles. I think what I learned at Dermalogica was that, and I learned this also when I went to Australia, that even though you may not have done 100% of the role before, you've been exposed to enough of it to trust your instincts to know. Mm -hmm. Yeah, enough to be dangerous. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and yeah, so I just felt like I had I knew brand well enough. I'd worked on brands for so long and so many different types of brands and so many different business situations that I felt like, why not? Yeah. And so now it's almost a year and a half in, I think. And so how yeah. do you feel now on the other side of it all? And how would you describe your leadership style? That's interesting. I think I'm collaborative. So I think my my instinct is to always kind of work with people. I don't pretend to know everything, but I think I have good instincts. And I think I ask good questions. And so I'm very much a generalist. So I'm really good at kind of kind of being proficient in a lot of things without being the expert in any one. And I think that lends itself to this role. And I think it's important to obviously have good experts below you within the respective functional areas. So I think from that perspective, that's very true. And I think it leads to the collaborative style. And then I always think, you know, hindsight's twenty twenty, And they always say like, the things you don't know, you're not scared of or intimidated by because you don't know them, which is why I think when you listen to so many entrepreneurs, they always say like, well, if I'd only known what 
I wouldn't have done it if I knew what I knew now, right? And so I think that's very true in, in a lot of situations when you walk into something for the first time. So for example, I never had IT reporting to me directly. I never necessarily had operations reporting to me directly, although I worked with operations throughout my career. So I think you sort of just, you let people lead you sometimes if you don't necessarily think you know better. And you just continue to ask questions. What do you feel like people, most people don't know about being CEO? That I think when things are tough, it's the toughest job because ultimately everyone's looking for you to turn things around. Mm -hmm. And I think when things are going well, it can actually be a lot easier than a lot of roles because you get the credit for everything that's working right. (laughs) Right. (laughs) Right. It's responsibility is pretty heavy on both sides. Yeah. So when times do get really tough, in terms of like resolving conflict, maybe you have some strategies or advice there. But I guess what advice do you have for other CEOs that are maybe in the tough times area and everything is on their shoulders right now? I think that all you can do is plan for the scenarios that you think are likely and to try and get ahead of it by planning for different possibilities. And I think for me, the thing that I've learned time and time in my career, and I think in this role as well, is that you really have to, people really, especially in the CEO world, look for you for strategy. And I think it's really important to focus your strategy on the real big bets. And I think, especially in beauty and in consumer products, there's so many things you can do. It's such a dynamic industry. The portfolios are large. There's a lot of innovation. There's a lot of different things going on. I think it's really important to make sure that the brand stands for something, the teams know what are the clear priorities, that you can build a plan and prioritize around them. And while I think it's really important to be able to stick to that, it's also important to be able to keep your eyes open and to pivot should things not necessarily pan out the way you think. But I think time and time again, I'm always sort of reminded of how important it is to just focus on what's working and to drive that throughout the organization, and in beauty in particular, to drive that through the consumer. Looking back and just kind of for the entrepreneurs that are early on in their careers, or maybe even they're working at like a L'Oreal or some other big corporate company, and they're looking at your background saying, I want to be like Paul. I want to be CEO one day. What do you think are some of the early personality traits, those like early signs of what could become a great person for the CEO seat? It's a good question. I mean, I I personally think it takes all types, right? I don't think I'm necessarily atypical. I mean, uh, or typical, I think I'm kind of, there are certain things that might be expected and certain things that aren't. I think for me, it's most important that you stay true to who you are and that it's authentic and that you feel comfortable enough letting that come through. I think ultimately, that's really what matters the most. I don't think there's one way to do anything. You know, I don't know that if you would have seen like 21-year-old Paul coming out of film school that you would necessarily think that like that's the next CEO, right? I think it just takes all types and, and types I of mean, people. I think sending a shoe to someone to get a job <laughs> is a clear indicator of a hustler and someone future, who is going success. places. Yes, 100%. <laughs> I would have put my bet on Paul way back. (laughs) (laughs) That's really funny. Uh, So, you know, kind of going back to, I guess, a little bit of the stress since CEOs do carry so much responsibility and weight on their shoulders. What do you do to reduce stress? How do you kind of manage your lifestyle? 
wellness is, is a big part of Dr. Murad's message. And so, you know, he's, he's a, he kind of coined skincare as healthcare as he's got so many different messages, but he always took a very holistic approach to it. And so we talk about wellness and mindfulness quite a lot at the office, but also as a brand. And it's amazing because he was so far ahead of his time that so much of what he talked about is still so important now. It's kind of having its moment now in a way. So I'm very conscious because I think it's such a part of the brand of making sure that of being aware of like what I do actually. And I do a number of different things and it kind of evolves as sort of, it depends on like kind of what I'm going through. But, you know, I, I typically, I try and work out probably two, sometimes three, if I'm lucky times a week, although it should be more. I do like hot yoga, which I love. So that just, I find great. It's just really great at clearing my mind. And that for me is kind of the ultimate objective because I do find that if you can put yourself into a situation or like activities that really clear your thoughts, that for me is really important because I have a tendency to kind of run, remunerate over things over and over again. So I find for me the most satisfying is when I can do an activity where it takes my mind off of that constant dialogue and the constant analysis that's always going on in my head. I'm not a big TV person, but I do, I'll, I'll also watch documentaries and stuff sometimes because I find that I seem to be able to get more lost in other people's true stories. I think the fact that it's true, for some reason, I, I engage with it a bit more. And so I think between the physical activity and some of those more mindless sort of passive watching a documentary types of things is what I do to kind of just keep my mind off of the day-to-day stuff. And I think it's just so important to be able to have that time during the week to kind of just check out. Right. It's funny you say that. I love documentaries too. I feel like I love them because I see it as like an opportunity to be entertained, but also to continue learning. And if I can do both at the same time, that's great. Because otherwise, I feel like if I'm wrapped up, I just could never get interested in the fictional stuff. Like I just felt like it's such a waste of time. Why would I want to read or watch or listen to something so far off base of reality, you know, (laughs) when there's still so much to learn right here, right now. I feel the same way. I talk to my boyfriend about that all the time because like he's always watching Star Trek and I'm like, I just can't do it. Like I can watch it occasionally, but I need, I'm much more fascinated by the truth. (laughs) Yeah, same here. And there's still, yeah, there's just so much to learn out there. So in terms of Murad, the brand, I was reading up some of the history here. 1989 was when he launched the first brand of clinical skincare products. That's a very long time ago. Obviously, then he got his first patent in 1998 out of 19 patents. That's amazing. And then yeah. obviously, it's just been growing and growing so much from there. Maybe you can kind of speak a little bit more about the brand and how things have grown and where everything is now. Sure. Dr. Murad was really ahead of his time. So, you know, he was, I think, the first dermatologist brand. It started off as a, a professional line of products as a dermatologist. He appealed to other dermatologists. And then he was not afraid to take chances. And so, you know, he pivoted to, he's one of the first brands to go on infomercials and do the whole like midnight airing, talking about the products and the benefits. He was one of the first beauty brands to pivot to like an Ulta. And he subsequently really had a vision for treating his clients beyond just the specific skincare need, but really looking at more treating them more holistically. So 
he wrote a book 20 years ago called Cultural Stress and how as society became more connected and more advanced, technology actually was causing more stress in his clients and it was affecting their skin, but also their health, right? And he really viewed the two as being very much related. And so really, we try and really stay true to a lot of that. So I mean, as so many brands in the last couple of years, you know, with the explosion of Facebook and then Instagram and then TikTok, so much of it was about bringing the brand to life in different ways through different platforms, through content creators. And I think what we've tried to do is stay true to who he was and his vision. He's still involved with the brand. You know, he's in his mid-80s now, but he's still in the office with us. And also think about, you know, whether it's product development or how we activate a launch in social media to think about what is still true to his vision and to the premise of the brand. And to think about how do you evolve that, though, as the world evolves, especially as it relates to social media. So a lot of what we do now is really about bringing dermatologist solutions to to consumers, looking at specific skincare needs. But now it's really about empowering content creators with education and content to deliver great results. And we're, we consider ourselves a clinical brand, meaning that everything that we launch has clinicals strong before and afters, four-week, eight-week studies. So on one hand, you know, we're very clinical. We have the science behind everything that we do, but it's also so important then to then give all that information to people so that they can activate it and see the results for themselves and, and talk about that on social media because that's so much of how consumers today learn about products. So that's been a big shift, I think, like many brands. And I think the other really big thing for us is we're exploding in China. So during the pandemic, a lot of brands really declined in China. We really exploded. And I think the Chinese consumer is a very discerning consumer. And I think the science and the doctor-developed brand and positioning resonate really well. So China has been a real great opportunity for us as we've seen the brand really just like do extremely well there in the last couple of years. That's awesome. And I've been using a few of the products here. I don't think I have eczema, but I have tried the um, Daily Defense Oatmeal Cream and we've got the Eye Wrinkle Corrector because I got some of those popping out and the cleanser. And so I'd love to kind of hear, you know, I guess from the brand perspective and just what this means. It says 1.1%. It's what's that C word? Yeah. What does that mean? Yeah. What is that? So colloidal oatmeal is an ingredient that's actually really great for eczema. So eczema is flare-ups. It's usually caused by an immune system reaction. About 10% of the population in the U.S. have some sort of eczema at some point in time. So what we did was develop products that not only soothe the inflammation, which is what the colloidal oatmeal helps to do, but also help work to sort of prevent outbreaks from happening so that they're less frequent in between outbreaks because they tend to it tends to be something that repeats on people. So yeah, again, like eczema is a big, a big skin condition that people go to dermatologists to treat. And so you're know, staying true to the, the vision of the brand. It's it's been about bringing those products to market in a way that is really easy and accessible for, for most people to give them a solution that maybe doesn't require a visit to the doctor. Same thing with the wrinkle corrector. The wrinkle corrector was is really a bit of a filler. So it's a cosmetic filler, but it's really designed to, you know, looking at the fact that so many people are getting injections now and looking at a way to do it in a more cosmeceutical kind of way that's less intrusive and doesn't require necessarily a needle, but can get similar results. It's a, it's a great product. It's been one of our most successful, and it's it actually went viral on TikTok, and it 
it's quickly sold out because it it is so visible. And I think that's what's so interesting about that product is that the results are so visible that there's so many posts online with people who used it and you can see the before and after one side of their face versus the other. And you can really see the difference. So super cool. Cool. Good to know. I'm going to keep using this puppy every night. <laughs> nice. I love it. And so how big is the company now? How big is the team? And where are you guys headed? What's next for you know later this year? What can we expect? So I can't give you all that information just yet, but we are focused on uh, more innovation. So we're just now launching Retinal, which is a more advanced version of retinol. So retinol has been trending. It's obviously a vitamin A derivative. It's, it's an ingredient that's been around for a really long time. It's one of the most effective ingredients fighting wrinkles. It actually causes collagen to be produced more quickly over time. And vitamin A, your body converts retinol into retinol. And that's actually how it actually works. And so what we've done is we've created an encapsulated version of retinol, encapsulated so that it doesn't degrade in the environment when exposed to the environment, so that it's in an easier form for your body to convert. It's already converted to some extent. So it's in its most usable form that your body can use. And uh, we've seen incredible results on it. So we're just launching that now. And then we have some other really great innovation in Q4 coming out, which again is really a good follow-up to the Wrinkle Corrector, which was our most successful product, which is uh, the one that we launched last year. Is it really? So this this guy is your number one bestseller. It was number one new product. Yeah, new product. So it, okay. Yeah. What's so the best-selling our product? Our, like retinol, our retinol serum. Oh, nice. All right. So I'll have to try that next. Well, wonderful. Thank you so much, Paul. Do you have any, you know, before we wrap up, just kind of summing up your journey and everything. Do you have any final advice for aspiring CEOs that are tuning in or those in the trenches right now with that same title or role? Or Yeah, I mean, I, I guess, you know, I would say is, I think it's always the balance between tenacity and flexibility, right? It's having the determination to continue with something, to have a vision that you believe in. But I think also knowing when to be flexible to pivot. I think those are the, that's kind of the key. So I think that for me has always been kind of the secret to success, I think. That's awesome. Well, congrats again on your first CEO title. And thanks for joining me on the show today. Thank you very much. Thanks for having me. Thank you so much for listening to the Stairway to CEO podcast. Once again, I'm your host, Lee Green. And if you have any burning business questions, please feel free to reach us at www.stairwaytoceo.com. We'd love to hear from you. And if you like what you hear, be sure to subscribe to the show, tell your friends, leave us a review, and follow us on Instagram at Stairway to CEO. Until next time, guys, keep on climbing. <laughs>